First of all, uh, this year should be a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruvain and Yeshai Ben Yisrael and Benjamin Wolf Ben Tzvi Hesh and Baruch Ben Benjamin Wolf. Today is a, I want to give a share uh, about what really happens on Rosh Hashanah and the Asesimei Tshuva and Yom Kippur. <clears throat> uh, last week I spoke about that <clears throat> and I had spoken about one of the dimensions of Rosh Hashanah, which is really very important. The whole concept <clears throat> is that we are in a process of doing a tikkun, a rectification of the uh, creation by bringing God back. And therefore, every endeavor needs some type of evaluation to see where it stands. Is the goal uh, being achieved or not? So therefore, I had gone into last week the concept that Rosh Hashanah is really that. That's really what it does. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to listen, he should listen to last week's share. Uh, this week I want to go into uh, the, the idea of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, because we are really one, one, one day away from Yom Kippur, but on a much deeper level, uh, which is really fascinating. Uh, but I, what I'd like is before I start that, that share about the, the real uh, uh, holiness of Yom Kippur, what happens and so on, <clears throat> I want to talk about what is now really uh, on so many people's minds in America. Can somebody shut their... Oh, okay. What do I have to do? Star? Six. Star six. Sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> so I wanted to talk about what is really... Uh, a cataclysmic event that has happened in America, and of course that 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 is the <coughs> hurricane uh, that has uh, destroyed a great deal of Florida, which is astounding. Uh, it was massive; it covered the entire state of Florida. Could you imagine how big that is? And it destroyed a, a great deal of Florida. And I wanted to speak about what that means. Why it, why this one came, you know, uh, this particular uh, hurricane Ian, and it also tells us many ideas about how God runs His world in terms of justice. <clears throat> now, what people have to understand, and most people don't, because we don't uh, realize the measure of din, judgment, and therefore retribution for the judgment. When God created the world, he created a concept called midah keneged midah, which is measure for measure. That means that whatever a person does, he is responsible for that. There's a true accountability for whatever he does. And therefore, and that's called midah keneged midah, measure for measure, you see. <clears throat> so a person <clears throat> is responsible, like I said, there's an accountability 
So the exact measure of whatever he uh, performs, and it's exact, the precision is awesome. Now, <clears throat> the interesting thing about it is that only God can measure how much of a cause a person really is. We don't really know. Because a person's behavior <clears throat> influences not only himself, but his neighbors, right? The city he lives in, uh, the state, even the country. We don't realize how far behavior can affect. God does, however, know. So if somebody does something, <clears throat> he may think, well, it's only local, you know, big deal. Or it's not going to really influence that many people, you know, to do evil or whatever. But that's not true. Because we don't realize the pervasiveness of a person's actions. Very important concept, you see. But God does. He knows exactly what a person's behavior will yield in terms of influencing others. And if a person's behavior is bad, evil, corrupt, you see, uh, then he may not realize how much, what type of corrupting influence that has. But like I said, God does. <clears throat> and justice demands that he be recompensed for every iota of the evil that he does even though he's not aware of the pervasiveness of his actions. It's a very important concept that when a person does something, <clears throat> he doesn't really know, like I said, how far it goes. And not only that, what he doesn't know also is that even if it doesn't affect people immediately now, it may affect somebody, you know, 50 years from now. For instance, let's say somebody writes a book, bad book, filled with corruption and, and uh, uh, sexual perversion or whatever he writes, right? <clears throat> and 20 years from the, that uh, person's writings, somebody picks up that book, reads it, and is influenced to do evil, right? He doesn't know that when he does it, that it's going to affect somebody 20 years from now. But that is taken into consideration, you see. So not only when a person is alive, does he not know how far his evil will reach, but that evil can go for hundreds of years. As we see, that people that commit evil, it could be hundreds of years later that that has its repercussions, you see. But God knows exactly what he does, how far it's going to reach, and how much of an influence it will have for all future generations. Could you believe this? It's incredible, you see. And he knows precisely with incredible what's called exactitude, the effect of that evil. And what justice demands is that he be, have the retribution of the evil that he generated or caused. <clears throat> so that's the first thing 
that we really cannot judge based on that. But this determines the acts of God when he punishes. <clears throat> you see, the second thing people do not realize is that even if they don't commit the evil themselves, so they don't know what it does immediately or later on or whatever, but also they don't, even if they don't do the evil, but if their silence in some way allows the evil to exist, then they are considered as having contributed to the, to the existence of that evil. And they are likewise, pun likewise punished. You see, so could you imagine what that means? That if you cause evil by doing an act, or you don't cause it, but you could have prevented it, or in some way you contributed to the evil that was done by somebody else, you see, then you are punished. Even though you, you may not even know what that other person did. Now, only God can measure that. The, the, the concept and the nature of a contribution to that evil. And he knows exactly what it is. You see? So therefore, you know, there was a, a, a person, British, I think his name is Lord Harrington. He said a very famous statement. He said, evil, all evil needs to be successful is that the good does nothing to prevent it. That's a very profound concept, you see. No, it's, you didn't do the evil, somebody else did the evil. But if you could have prevented it, then you are likewise guilty of doing that evil. Of course, not to the same extent, obviously, because you didn't do it. But since you could have prevented it, you are called a contribution to that evil, you see. And even if it's subtle, you see, it's very subtle that you created a certain atmosphere in which that evil can flourish, even though you didn't do the evil. But if you contributed to, like I say, that atmosphere where that evil can be done, then you are guilty. Not Again, not the same way the person who does it. Because what God does, that's the concept of din. Anything, and I mean anything, that, that evil, in any way that evil happens, if the, some aspect of the evil can be, you know, applied to you, then in some way you are guilty of that evil, even though you, the punishment may be much less severe, <clears throat> but that you are considered guilty. It's a very important concept, you see. <clears throat> That is the concept of Mida Keneged Mida, that when God says that there is a concept called justice, and every action must have a reaction, Newton's law in physics, that means any action, whether it be direct, indirect, committed, or it was done through omission, doesn't make a difference. Any kind of evil that can be, you know, ascribed to you must be recompensed, and therefore you will be punished. 
Now, only God knows, and he's the only one that can measure this, obviously, because that's how subtle all of this is. But that is the repercussions of evil. And the truth is, when you think about this, it is totally, absolutely frightening because we don't know the repercussions of our actions. And to know that any evil done which can be contributed by us or caused by us must be recompensed. It's frightening. And this also explains a great deal of what happens in the world, you see, as I will demonstrate. Now, where do we see this? And like I say, it's really very frightening. For instance, let's take an event in the Torah. The Jews sinned by the golden calf. Right? We know that. By Matan Torah, when God gave the Torah, right? Moshe, they thought Moshe Rabbeinu was late, and they decided to create, uh, manufacture a golden calf, and they began to worship it. Now we find that only about 3,000 people died as a punishment. So if that's the case, why do all the Jews have to be punished? And there was. The punishment for the Chetah Egel goes down to all the generations. It's terrible. But they didn't do the Chetah Egel. Only the Erev did it. So why is everybody guilty? Why does everybody have to suffer for the sins of a few? Or I should say relatively few. I mean, 3,000 people? That's not much. You see? But the answer is because in some way the Jews are guilty, all of them. <clears throat> because they allowed, they tolerated the Erev to do the Chet You see? So by doing nothing or not trying to prevent that, they in some measure of justice are held guilty. You see? Now, of course, the guilt is not the same as the people who actually worship the golden calf. But since they could have stopped these people uh, from doing worshiping the golden calf, then they are considered as if they had sinned, even though it's less of a culpability, which is true. But they are considered as if they had sinned. And therefore, it's a collective guilt. Now, only God can decide and measure a person's level of culpability. Okay. But remember, nevertheless, it's there. But it shows you, since the Chet Egel is one of the greatest sins ever committed by the Jews collectively, we can begin to imagine the seriousness that God takes when somebody commits a sin or evil. Very bad. That's a very important concept to remember. <clears throat> now, for instance, there's another story. As an example, when Yoshua went with the Jewish people after Moshe Rabbeinu died, he crossed over the Jordan, right? <clears throat> and he was commanded to, you know, take down Yericho, Jericho, which he did. And then they, took, they were commanded to go to another city called Ai, And the command was that nobody could take any of the spoils of the city of Ai. Nobody. And there was somebody, one person, his name was Achon. He violated that. 
he took a, whatever he took, a small article from the spoils of the city. So he violated the direct command of God. <clears throat> so what happened? Was Achon punished? Yes. But everybody was punished. Because when they went to war to capture the next city, they lost. They actually lost. Even though they had the promise of God's protection and that they would be victorious. So everybody was punished because of Achon. But why? Because they are considered, since Achon did the sin, the Jewish people should have created an atmosphere, right? Some type of uh, feeling that you can't violate a command, a direct command of God. <clears throat> they should have instilled in everybody, all the Jews, this fear of not violating a command of God. That's what they should have done. And therefore, Achan would not have done the sin because he would have absorbed the seriousness of a divine command. Now, could you imagine that? That's what they should have done. And they could have prevented Achan. Uh, look how far remote is the guilt of everybody. You see? I mean, if you walk over to anybody and say, wait a minute, Achon should be punished because he violated the command of God. But nobody else should be punished. They didn't commit any crime, no sin, nothing. Uh, so why are they all losing the battle? And the answer is because in some way they could have done something to create an atmosphere where you cannot violate the command of God. And therefore they were remiss in that atmosphere. As a result of that, they were punished. It's astounding, isn't it? <clears throat> because God decided that justice is not if you commit it, right? And it's not if you commit it and it affects right then and there a person that you have direct contact with. But even if it happens, if somebody is affected 300 years later by something you did, that is put at your doorstep. It's astounding. Not only God, that's the concept. You see, of course, what God considers din. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because it explains a great deal of the actions of God. Let's take, uh, in 2005, if I remember correctly, Katrina, which I once spoke about. Uh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Now, I gave a sheer about that. Why? And I mentioned that Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, I think it was on Monday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah. And it went over the levees, because New Orleans in certain ways is below, the, below sea level. It went over the levees and inundated, flooded, destroyed New Orleans. <clears throat> so the question is why? What was the collective guilt of the whole New Orleans, the whole city? And the answer is, which I realized, uh, and I mentioned it uh, previous year, because on Wednesday of the week that Katrina hit was supposed to be a holiday, an annual holiday called 
Southern Decadence Day. It's an annual holiday where all types of sexual promiscuity, deviations, LGBTQ, is tolerated openly, even by policemen, and it's done openly in the streets of New Orleans. You see, so what God did is he brought a mobble, a flood. That's one of the reasons why he destroyed the planet, because of the sexual promiscuity and deviancy that happened in his day, right? And he destroyed the entire earth. So because, you know, uh, New Orleans was going to have an actual holiday, even though it wasn't a legal position, but it was something where they absolutely celebrated it, you see? And they tolerated it. Uh, so therefore, everybody was destroyed, even those people who did not participate in that type of sexual promiscuity. You see? Again, because they allowed this to occur. They were in agreement. Even if they didn't do it themselves, it doesn't make a difference. God decided that they're all part of the guilt of that sin, and therefore God brought a mobble. He destroyed New Orleans for that sin. It's amazing when you think about that. But that answers why is it, for instance, that all of a sudden there's a hurricane that destroys enormous amount of property and people, destroys everything they have and so on. And they could say, well, I didn't do anything. But whatever God does is always according to justice. Like it says in Zeno, Tzadik V'yoshohu, that God is absolutely righteous and fair. Ain't ovel. There's no injustice by God. Uh, that means everybody who suffered as a result of some weather extreme deserves it. Except we don't understand why. Because we don't know what the person does. He could have done something 10 years ago, and God waited for him to repent. Or, right, it could have been done in a previous incarnation. Whatever it is, it all collects. And the amazing thing is that whoever deserves it will be punished. And this is what happens, you see. And that's what happened with Katrina. And that's what happens with any weather extreme, you see. Uh, Of course, we cannot even begin to fathom how God can measure that level of culpability. Now, what happened to Florida is astounding. I mean, it was one of the greatest hurricanes to ever hit Florida. I hear that the damage is the greatest damage ever done to a hurricane in the United States. I think somebody told me, um, even Andrew, which was in Florida, I think in 1991 or whatever, I think the amount of damage was $47 billion. And I heard that, uh, Ian, the damage is $66 billion. It's a staggering amount of money. So the question is why? What was the sin, the collective sin of Florida? Because we're not talking here about one person. We're talking about the whole state. Actually, we're talking about the whole America. You see, because America is going to have to fork over a tremendous amount of money from FEMA, which is all tax money. And that will clearly do things to the economy, right? That, that's very damaging. <clears throat> so the question is why? So <clears throat> I, 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 somebody pointed out to me, they did research, 
found an amazing thing. What did they find? That in the month of October, and I maybe to an extent November, that all these, many of the cities and towns that the hurricane went over was going to have a gay pride parade. <clears throat> right. Which is astounding. So Hurricane Ian did exactly what Katrina did. It wiped out, but the, the, the destruction is incredible. It punished Florida because of the LGBTQ. <clears throat> so therefore, even people who are not themselves LGBTQ, you see, also have to suffer because they tolerate hashchosa, this enormous hashchosa, you see. And therefore, they're all, they're all held in collective guilt, you see. <clears throat> so this Hurricane Ian is really a repeat of Katrina, you see. Because the atmosphere that is created in Florida allows cities and towns openly to be pride, to have pride, you know, and to, to actually advertise that we are a city or a town that allows gays, whatever, LGBTQ people, and on the contrary, we welcome them, and we even have a parade. And since everybody tolerates that in Florida then they all have a collective guilt, like I said, because the judgment of the guilt is exact, and that's what God decided. So I, I just wanted to mention that, that this is basically, what, in terms of what I think, why it happened, because of the tremendous amount of hashchosa. What kind of hashchosa? The corruption and the moral decay and the decadence of Florida because they allow this to occur. So God does what he did. He wiped out that state. I mean, $66 billion is an awesome sum of money. And that's what happens, you see? And that explains the, the, that the, well, I think the major, the major damaging factor was the water, and that's the marble. So even though God did, will not destroy the world, a marble, you know, that's what he said. It will, it will not flood the planet. He can do it to an individual city or state or an individual region. And that's exactly what he did. In any case, so that's an understanding of Hurricane Ian and also an understanding of how justice is meted out or dealt with according to the Midas Hadin the attribute of justice. <clears throat> you see. Now, second thing I want to mention is the, the world has hadn't been under the threat of a nuclear threat for a long time. And Putin has threatened the world that if you interfere or you threaten us, means Russia, I'm not, I, I'm not against using a nuclear, what he calls a tactical nuclear bomb, which is a, a local uh, bomb. Yeah, he'll use it. Now, the problem with Putin, okay, is that Putin is very concerned about his image and how he looks. 
you see. And Putin made a terrible mistake. He thought that the Russian army was up to, you know, capturing or subduing Ukraine. Of course, the whole mistake was he should never have done that in the first place, because what did Ukraine do to deserve this? Right? It was a real attack of one sovereign state against another. But the idea is, <clears throat> is that Putin realizes that his reputation, he looks like a fool. Because everybody had this incredible uh, idea that the Russian army is invincible. Besides the nuclear capacity of Russia, but it comes out that they cannot even go against, right, Ukraine, which is what, a third world country. And not only that, <clears throat> Ukraine is now uh, retaking a tremendous amount of the territory that Russia took. I mean, could you imagine how embarrassing that is to Putin and to the whole image and reputation of Russia? So therefore, the problem is Putin has to save face because he's tremendously mindful of his reputation. So what he has done, <clears throat> therefore, it's very possible, I believe, that he may, uh, you know, uh, 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 perform or send a, a, a nuclear bomb. Yeah, right, to save face. I don't believe that, I, I, I believe that he's not, you know, below that threat. So he is threatening the world because a nuclear weapon against Ukraine would bring in the United States, it would bring in NATO, it could easily escalate into World War Three. <clears throat> now, one thing is important to know, that the Russian is allowing this. Why? Because when mankind performs sins, in which they are high of Misa, they are subject to the death penalty, then he allows the world to be threatened with utter destruction as a warning. In other words, it's not Putin, even though he's the one saying this, but what it really means is the Russian is telling the world that I am allowing you to be threatened with destruction by Putin. Why? Because you're all really high of Misa. The whole world is subject to the death penalty. Why? Because, as I mentioned many times, the whole concept of the corruption of LGBTQ. And we know that's why God destroyed the, uh, the world and Saddam because of that. So that is why we are witnessing something which hasn't happened in a long time. That we now wake up and wonder, will today be World War Three? Right. And that is a warning to the world that that's really what you deserve. Except, you know, I'm not allowing it to happen. But this is a warning, just like Noyach. Noyach built that ark for 120 years. Why? Because God was sending a warning to the world. People would ask Noyach, why are you building this ark? And he would say, because God is going to destroy the world, right, in 120 years or whatever. And of course, everybody laughed. You see? Well, God sends a warning. And the warning in this way is that the world can kill itself easily. All Putin has to do is send one nuclear bomb to Ukraine, which he can easily do to save face, and that's World War III. And that is a warning to the world that they deserve this type of threat because what they are doing deserves the death penalty. Anyway, 
That's uh, an interesting uh, concept. So these are the two uh, the ideas I wanted to bring because, uh, you know, it's all, it's all about current events. Um, now, when you take a look at Rosh Hashanah, you see, it's very interesting. <clears throat> what exactly is Rosh Hashanah all about, right? Now, of course, we think it's about dinam. It's about judgment, you see. <clears throat> but there's something very interesting God is an awesome, infinite being. Merely to be in his presence is awesome. If you are in the presence of God, and God allows himself to be exposed or revealed, then you will have this incredible fear, awe, and you will tremble just, just by being in his presence. But what the Mershom has done is created a concept called Simpson, where he conceals his presence. And because he conceals his presence, I don't want to go into the whole plan, which I spoke about different times before. He has to conceal his presence because the essential idea of God is that besides God, nothing else really exists. So God has to conceal some aspect of his presence and thereby allow the, uh, the presence of Zulosoy, an other. If God didn't conceal his presence, there could be no other. Nothing would exist. And when I say nothing, I mean absolutely nothing. No solar system, no universe, no angels, no reality other than God. So what he does is he conceals his presence, and that's called Simpson restriction and because of that because he conceals his presence where he's the only thing that exists he can bring into existence a zulosoy an other and that's how everything comes to be you see now the essential attribute of God is a very interesting attribute I mean there's many things that we can attribute to God he's infinite he's omnipotent omniscient omnipresent without going into all that but the essential attribute of God is called emes, truth. As it says at the end of Shmon Esrei, Hashem Elokechem, emes, God is truth. What does that mean? That means there is no deception. There is no concealment. The essential attribute of God is emes, that in God's presence, there's, there's no falsehood. There's no deception, like I say. Everything is revealed. In other words, reality is completely revealed. That is an essential attribute of God. But we notice something. Wait a minute. In order for you to have a creation, you had to perform symptom, concealment, which is what? Which hides you, you see, so God entered some type of a midah, which is, which is called not emes. Because the concealment of God is false. Because the concealment of God, which is called Simpson restriction, means that God either doesn't exist or he exists in a se severely diminished form. Yeah, but that's not true, you see. So when you think about it, 
concept of tzimtzum is an exact opposite of the major measure characteristic of God, which is MS. Isn't that interesting? And God has to maintain that tzimtzum, or creation will evaporate. But that is the exact opposite of who He really is, which is MS. Like I said, Hashem Elokeichem MS. You see? It's interesting that God has to, you know, exist in an atmosphere of falsehood. Because we don't perceive who He really is, and therefore it is false. You see? So God, in a certain sense, has to violate His own personality or His own essential characteristic, you see. It's a very interesting idea. So what does God do? You know, there's a place called Rockefeller Plaza. It's in Manhattan. I think it's 50th Street and 5th Avenue. You see, it's got a lot of stuff. It's a real public place, you see. I once read a long time ago, who owns Rockefeller Plaza? And the answer is Rockefeller. It is owned by the estate of the Rockefellers. They own it yet it is used as a public place. It's interesting. So legally, they must demonstrate ownership for one period during the year. So it's interesting, they close off the whole Rockefeller Plaza from anybody, public anybody, right? I'm not sure how long. It could be the one day, or maybe two hours of one day, whatever. Because in order to legally remain as owners of Rockefeller Plaza, they have to demonstrate bylaws. They have to demonstrate ownership. So if you really think about it, God says, you know, I can't always be Simpson. How long can I maintain this, you know, this false illusion of who I really am? So I'm going to dedicate one day or maybe even ten where I'm going to reveal myself, you see. And therefore, to some extent, I'm going to demonstrate the MS, you see. And that's what he does. So therefore, what God does, he demonstrates the concept of MS, of real, um, you see, of who he really is. You know, it's like, it's like the Rockefeller Plaza where they have to demonstrate something of who they are. You see. Which is really very interesting. <clears throat> so therefore, God has chosen 10 days to reveal who He is. So what He does is He, de- he removes the symptom to a certain extent, and therefore his attribute of MS, his attribute of MS is reversed. Or rather his, his, his uh, characteristic of remaining concealed is actually reversed for 10 days. And when is this time period that he actually demonstrates who he really is the attribute, therefore, of MS, although it's not totally MS, but it is a demonstration. This is the 10 days of tshuva. 
That's what happens on Rosh Hashanah. You see, so what God does on Rosh Hashanah is He demonstrates some aspect of His being, and that aspect is the Malchus, is the kingdom, is the kingship. That's what He demonstrates. In other words, on Rosh Hashanah and throughout the whole 10 days, there is a revelation, you see, of the being of God, the awesomeness of God Himself. And that goes on from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, you see. That's what He does. Now, what is interesting, if you read a very famous uh, section of the davening of Rosh Hashanah, it's called, and Yom Kippur, it's called Unisane Tokov, Tokev. <clears throat> and it's very interesting, it reveals certain very interesting ideas. I'm going to read it in, in English, not the Hebrew, and I will then demonstrate certain ideas. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Let us now relate the power of this day's holiness. For it is awesome and frightening. Because remember, it's a demonstration of who God really is in terms of his essence. But it's not total or the entire universe would be completely destroyed. But there is a diminishment of Tzimtzum. But it's awesome and frightening. <clears throat> Here's what it says. He continues. On it, your kingship will be exalted. Why? In other words, your kingship, your malchus, the fact that you're a melech, will actually be manifest. You see? <clears throat> it will be manifest on that day. And this is what happens. On Rosh Hashanah, God exposes the fact that he is a melech, <clears throat> you see. And then it says, your throne will be firmed with kindness, and you will sit upon it in truth, which is what I'm saying. <clears throat> you sit upon it in truth, means the truth of who you are is actually revealed. And then it says the concept of kindness, and I will explain that, what that means. But then it continues and it says, it is true that you are alone, right? Uh, and are, are the one who judges, proves, knows, and bears witness, who writes and seals, counts and calculates, who remembers all that was forgotten. <clears throat> you will open the book of Chronicles. It will read itself and every, everyone's signature is in it. The great shofar <clears throat> will be sounded and still a still thin sound will be heard. And then it says, angels will hasten, trembling, and terror will seize them. And they will say, behold, it is a day of judgment, right? To judge the world. What do you see? That first it dis- d- discusses uh, who God is. And then angels tremble. Right? And they realized that it's a Yom Hadin. Why? Uh, because the Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment, 
of God isn't because God decides to judge the world. <clears throat> when God decides that he's got to reveal who he is to demonstrate the truth finally and not live in, in, in a, uh, a delusional state where, well, we don't see him, right? <clears throat> that automatically, in that, in that light of his being, demonstrating complete malchus, then what happens is din. Because once God says, forget about my symptom or my, you know, restriction of my presence, I'm going to openly reveal who I am. And he does. And automatically when God reveals all reality, because that's who he is, then automatically that's din. That's justice. Because all of a sudden everything is revealed. What we did, right? When we did it, how we did it, the repercussions of it, right? How far in the future it will affect. All of that and therefore what the verdict should be. Judgment is the conclusion or the effect of the revelation of God on Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur. Uh, so what I'm saying is something very interesting. What generates the concept of judgment, and that's why the angels say, Hine Yom Hadin. Behold, it's a day of judgment. Why? Because first they described the actual revelation of God's presence. Because that's what makes it obvious or generates the concept that it is a time of justice. Because the major midah of God is emes, is truth. And in that truth, automatically everything is revealed. And if everything is revealed, lo and behold, that's judgment. Because there's nothing that is concealed. Everything becomes obvious. So what we see is that in the ten days... What is revealed, God undoes the symptom. He reverses it. Where he says, look, I don't always want to conceal myself. I'm going to reveal myself. You see. Because I want to demonstrate who I am, which is the characteristic of truth. And automatically, there's a Yom Adin in that light when God reveals who he is. Now the Malachim, they tremble automatically because when you experience the being of God himself, you tremble. You're frightened because the being of God in and of itself is awesome. It's something we cannot even begin to comprehend. But they feel it. They experience that. And that's Unisana Tokev. That's what this paragraph reveals to us that the essential experience of Rosh Hashanah, really, is that God's being is awesome, and it is actually experienced by the Malochim, by the angels. And therefore, there is a time of judgment, because in the attribute of truth, automatically judgment occurs, because nothing is concealed, you see. So what really happens on Rosh Hashanah, is God undoes the timsum. He undoes the restriction. You see, where he actually reveals the presence and automatically there is a judgment. Uh, you see. But what he reveals, the truth of what he reveals, is malchus, his kingdom. What is king? 
A king controls everything. A king basically owns everything, and he controls everything. That's what a king is, right? He's a sovereign, which means he owns everything, like I said, and he controls everything. Everything is under his jurisdiction. That's Malchus. And that's what's revealed on Rosh Hashanah. But notice, God does not reveal the concept of his mitzius, his being, that he's the only one that exists. That revelation does not occur on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. It occurs in Yom Habo. You see, that revelation is a different type of revelation. You see, so the revelation of Rosh Hashanah is he's a melech, and the revelation on in Ilam Habo is that he is a source, that he is the source of all being, of all existence, you see. <clears throat> but at least on Rosh Hashanah, part of the concealment of God is reversed. That's the important thing to understand. And this continues for 10 days. And therefore, the whole 10 days is the concept of the uh, reversal of the tzimtzum, the reversal of the restriction of God's presence. So, <clears throat> that's what happens. Now, on Yom Kippur, however, which we're about to enter, is higher. Because what God reveals on Yom Kippur is more than what He reveals on Rosh Hashanah. You see, and we, we, we have never seen such a revelation as what happens on Yom Kippur. Because not only does God reveal that he's a melech, king, you see, but part of that revelation that he's a melech is that he reveals an attribute, you see, some type of an attribute that he's more than just a king. In a certain sense, that he is a source of being, although not like Olam Habo, you see. Uh, so because of that, Yom Kippur has a unique property. On Yom Kippur, there's a Sutton, but the Sutton cannot prosecute on Yom Kippur. That's the only time he never prosecutes. If you recall, the Sutton has three jobs. He's a tempter, called the Yetzirah, right? And not only that, but he's also the prosecuting attorney. He's called the Sutton in that role. And he's also the Malchamavas, the angel of death, where he executes the judgment. Not that he always kills, but he executes the judgment. But on Yom Kippur, God takes away one of the roles. He cannot prosecute. He can be a Yetzirah, which means you can still sin, because he tempts you. And he can kill. It's the Malcham of us. But he cannot prosecute as Kippur, which is an incredible concept, you see. Because that allows us to do tshuva, and there cannot be any type of prosecution against the tshuva we do. Because normally the Sultan would say, you call this a tshuva? You call this a repentance? Come on. He can't do that, because God dismisses him. In fact, the gematria, the numerical value of Hasatan, it's 364, you see. Not 365, 
Because in one day in the year, he does not prosecute. So Hasotan only adds up to 364 days, and not 365 days. Now the question is, we realize something very interesting, that if there's no satanic ability to prosecute, in many ways that is similar to the Yemoisa Mashiach, Messianic era. In the Messianic era, the Sultan is destroyed. So clearly then, there's no prosecution, there's no tempter, and there's no, uh, there's no death. That's the end, and there's no Zoyamo, which is his projection. All of that is gone, you see. So therefore, the MS that God will project in the Messianic era is beyond comprehension, you see, because uh, he, he doesn't need the same symptom that he needed before in the 5,000 years or whatever. He doesn't need that anymore, you see, because there's no more free will in the Messianic era after Mashiach Pindavid. So therefore, in the Messianic era, he destroys the Sultan, whatever, whatever way, you see. But one of the jobs of the Sultan is to prosecute. And he takes that away on Yom Kippur. Well, isn't that interesting? That's a messianic likeness. Because in that day, the Sutton is curtailed in terms of what he can do. He cannot prosecute. How does that happen? And the answer to that is because on Yom Kippur, something is revealed more than on Rosh Hashanah, you see. So on Rosh Hashanah, what is revealed? The MS. You see, but the emiss of Malchus, of kingship, you see. But what's revealed on Yom Kippur is the greatest of the emiss, almost the greatest. The greatest emiss of God is that he is infinitely chesed. That God wants to bestow an infinite state of goodness on everybody, all the Jews, you see. That's what he wants to bestow. And that is, is, is what shines or is illuminated on Yom Kippur. So you have the MS illuminated Yom Kippur, just like Rosh Hashanah. You have a Malchus, but you also have infinite Chesed. So since Chesed, which is really the sphere of Keser, is illuminated on Yom Kippur, therefore, automatically, that stops the Sutton from prosecuting altogether. So in that sense, we resemble the Messianic era, which is really, in many ways, very, very interesting, you see. <clears throat> and therefore, Yom Kippur, in a certain sense, is Messianic, because the Sutton is denied one of his functions. On, in the Messianic era, he's denied everything, and he's destroyed. But on Rosh Hashanah, it's also, in a certain sense, messianic because he's denied his ability to prosecute, you see. And that's because God reveals a level of MS which is greater than Rosh Hashanah. And that level of MS is the concept of chesed, you see. The concept that God is infinitely kind. And kind means that he will do something for you even though, even though you have absolutely no claim no reason, no merit to deserve anything. 
So what that does, and that is the meter that will shine in the Messianic era. So because you have that type of uh, uh, illumination that shines on Yom Kippur, automatically the Sutton resembles what will happen on, Russia, on, on, on the Messianic era, that he will be denied, you see, now on Yom Kippur, the ability to prosecute. You see, so Yom Kippur has a greater Kedushan than Rosh Hashanah, you see, because besides the truth of who God is, in terms of his malchus, his kingship, it's also his chesed, the fact that God is infinitely kind, and that illumination is so great, that's the sphere of keser, that the sudden cannot operate as a prosecutor, which in many ways is almost like his essential function to prosecute, you see. <clears throat> this is what happens therefore on Yom Kippur. That is why it behooves all of us to take advantage of this, you see. Because if the Sutton cannot prosecute, that means any type of tshuva, of repentance, any type, even if you're not sure, well, will I do tshuva, will I repent, Will I not? I don't know if I can, and so on. All of this is accepted as some type of tshuva. <clears throat> you see. And the truth is, this is hinted. Because Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, says that tshuva on Yom Kippur is automatic. Why? Even if you don't do tshuva, repentance is done. Why? So he said, because the essence of the day itself is machaper. You see, even if you don't do the act. Now, we don't hold like Rebbe. We hold you have to do an act of doing tshuva, which means you have to say vidui, you have to confess, uh, then you have to regret, and then you have to say that you won't do it again. But Rebbe, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yudanosi says, that you don't really have to do tshuva. Why? Because Yom Kippur, in and of itself, the essence of the day is so great that it will atone for your sins automatically. Why? And that is because of the illumination of Yom, Yom Kippur is phenomenal. That's why. <clears throat> and it's one of the ideas that God reveals the MS finally. It's almost like he's tired of the tzimtzum and he wants to display who he is. So the day of Yom Kippur is awesome, you see. And therefore what we should do is take advantage of that. Now we don't hold like Rebbe, we hold you have to do an act to repent. But could you imagine if the illumination of Yom Kippur is pure chesed because God has undone the tzimtzum, right? Could you imagine what that means, Right? That, that your tshuva, any tshuva, at whatever level, will be accepted at the level that you're doing it, obviously. Oh, you see? So even if you're not sure, can I repent? Can I not repent? Will I repent? Will it work? I don't know. I'm not sure. You see? Then do tshuva at any level for any sin. Because since there's no prosecution of the sudden, it must be accepted at the level that you see. So this is a very important concept. It's very practical for us. 
You see, take advantage of the day. We really have to take advantage of Yom Kippur. Look, even if you say to God on Yom Kippur, you know, and say, listen, I'm so caught up in sinning, I don't know if I can really repent. I think I'm going to have to repeat the sin over again. But God, I want to tell you one thing. I really would rather not be doing this. I don't want to really go against your will, you know. So maybe help me out. Give me the strength to resist sinning. Because I really feel terrible. And I regret the fact that I sin. That statement itself is an unbelievable repentance. You see, and God waits for that statement, at least that statement. Regret, if you asked, of the three things required for tshuva, one is to acknowledge the sin, that's called the confession. The second thing is to regret that you did it. And the third thing is to take on that you will not do it again. And that, that's really the act of repentance. If you really think about that, and the Chavetz Chaim says this, of those three actions, which is the greatest, and he says, charoto, regret. Because in many ways, we're not all in charge of what we can and cannot do. But what we are in charge is, do we regret what we did at least? Do we feel bad about what we did? Would we like to repent? That statement by a, a human, by a person, by a Jew, is immeasurably valuable to God. Because that's really what he wants. He knows, therefore, that if you had the strength, if you had the will, the resolve, right? If you had the assistance, you would do tshuva, you see. And therefore, that statement that you regret sinning against God, and that if it was possible, you'd love to really repent, that is an incredible statement that is treasured by God. And on Yom Kippur, when there's no prosecution, so the Sultan can't say, why are you accepting this man's repentance? You know, he's not saying he's going to repent, or rather, he's not saying he's not going to do it again, you see. But he can't say that to Sultan, because he cannot prosecute. So I'm telling you, at least have regret for the sins that you do. That itself is immeasurably great. In any case, we now understand what these ten days are. You see, they are days that God undoes the tzimtzum, that he undoes the restriction of his presence, and he accepts or he wears the attribute, which is the real attribute of God, which is MS, truth. You see, that there is no deception. He actually wears that, you see, and on Yom Kippur, and therefore automatically, the result is Yom Hadin, you see, which the angels tremble at the revelation of his presence. And on Yom Kippur, it's a greater revelation, you see, and therefore, since that revelation is even greater, then the illumination itself is filled with chesed, kindness, you see, where God will give you something for nothing, even if you do nothing, that's how great the goodness of God really is. 
you see. And the reason why you have to work for it is because I once gave a shiv namadik sufa, prayer of shame, you have, to, you have to earn it. But really, the essence of God, right, is not namadik sufa. The essence is chesed. He just wants to benefit. He wants to bestow an infinite state of goodness. And that is shining on Yom Kippur. And therefore, in that light, even a sudden cannot prosecute. So, if we realize this, we need to take advantage of this, of his chesed. So, I'm saying even if you combine a minimal amount of repentance, see? Like Rebbe said, the, the essence of the day itself is so great that you can have a kapora without any real tshuva. It's astounding. And even if we don't hold like Rebbe, but still, we could take advantage of the fact that tshuva is so much easier, you see. <clears throat> and that's why, and that's the posuk that says, Dear Shu Hashem Behimotsoi, seek God when He is, can be found. And that means on the ten days of 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 tshuva, uh, because he can be found, like I said, because on that day he wants to demonstrate who he really is. You see, and that's what Yom Kippur is really all about. So therefore, I certainly would urge everybody to think and to do tshuva. And I once mentioned what the main tshuva is: that God wants to know that you're part of His team. I mentioned that the main tshuva roshana. And I mean, Kippur, if you can do that, that would be incredible. Just say, look, I'm, I'm with you. I'm concerned about your presence. I want to bring you back. You see, I want to sanctify the name of God. So I'm still part of the team, even though I fall. And I falter. Please forgive me. But I'm still part of your team. Which is what I mentioned previous year. Anyway, uh, so certainly... Take, take advantage of the awesome presence of Yom Kippur. Because once they blow that shofar after Yom Kippur is over, then it closes. Then God resurrects the tzimtzum. And then he goes into hiding again until finally the tikkun, right? And that tikkun is the messianic era when he will no longer hide. And that's what it means, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. And what that means is that he undoes the tzimtzum, you see, and he will appear to everybody on, as Rosh Hashanah, like it says, and it will be on that day that God will be king of the earth. You'll see it like the Malachim, right? On that day God will be one and his name will be one, Right? He and his name will be one, which means you call him Melech now, but you'll actually see the Malchus. In other words, we will experience exactly what the angels experience on Rosh Hashanah. Even though it means trembling, because we will be privy to the experience of experiencing God in his awesome being. Any questions? Hello? Yes. So, Rabbi, oh, okay. so, um, 
So how does this, meaning, okay, first of all, from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, you said it, um, we had the 10 days in between. And we right. spoke on last week how each day is another sphere. So right. we work our way from the, from the Malchu up to the Keter? Right. So Yom Kippur is really the uh, exposure of Keser, which is the greatest emes, the greatest illumination of God. Keser is pure chesed. You see. Right. So now, obviously, it's all like um, super, super, not supernatural, but uh, subconscious. We don't really see anything different in the 10 Ds other than trying to put more attention on doing tshuva. Yeah. We don't experience what the angels experience. Because they actually experience God's illuminating himself. And that's why they're so frightened. I mean, we don't even know what they experience, but uh, they experience it. Because that's the truth of God. God wants to say, you know, I'm going to restrict Simpson, even if the only ones who feel that is the angels. We, however, have to demonstrate that we believe this, and therefore we have to think about that and become conscious that God is, he acts as a king on Rosh Hashanah. So is that why on Yom Kippur we're, we're compared to angels because we're not doing anything physical? Is that... Yes. Is it... So it's a taste yeah. of Olam Haba? It's a taste yes. of that messianic I, era? Well, it's a, I, I believe it's a taste of the messianic era. Where the physical takes a backseat and your spiritual um, is at the forefront. Right. That's why all the Jews are so elevated on Yom Kippur. It is. That's why it's a Yom Kodosh. Because the illumination of a sphere where God is not only king, but there's a manifestation of his infinite chesed, or the sphere of keser, is manifest. And so we automatically connect to that incredible holiness of God that he reveals, you see. So Yom Kippur is one of the greatest times of revelation we can ever have. You see. So how do we tap into that revelation on that day besides for having regret and you know, doing tshuva? Is there any other way to tap into that mentally? <clears throat> well, if you think about it, you can, it's almost like if you meditate on these ideas of this year, you know, and you really think about it at length, I believe that you can uh, uh, reach the consciousness of Yom Kippur. But you have to think about it. That's one of the reasons why, you know, we don't, we, we, we fast on Yom Kippur, you know, we avoid the five different forms of pleasure, you know, because what we really do is tap into God at a level which is beyond the physical. So in order to give us that mindset, God demands that we reduce our physical attachments. Because he really wants us to get into that mindset, you see, that he is illuminating himself uh, to the concept of chesed 
you know, and, and, and the malchus. And if we, you know, if we eat and all this kind of stuff, then we're into the physical. That's our problem. We're always distracted. You know, we're always enveloped by these physical desires, physical experiences. So the Simsum, besides for Yom Kippur, when the Mashiach comes, that will um, be less and less? Say that again. Okay. Besides for Yom Kippur, the Simsum, when Hashem conceals himself, it's like yeah. a veil, let's say. That veil thins out as the Mashiach comes? Yes. So Substantially. So process? Uh, well... Uh, it, it, it's a process that occurs because of the Bikido and the Zahira, right? You know, it, it, it happens in stages. But that's what happens. That the Tzimtzum is undone. It gets less and less and less. And as it gets less and less and less, automatically there's an enormous amount of, uh, of uh, Kiddusha, of the presence of God. That's what it means, that the earth will fill, be filled with the knowledge of God. Knowledge is not just knowing, but it's experiencing God himself. That's essentially what happens. So in that sense, we become like Malachim, that can actually experience divinity in the Messianic era, you see. That's after the... Uh, in, the um Resurrection of the dead. Uh, yeah, right. Because the Mashiach ben Yosef is struggling with evil. It's been dovered that where the you know uh, kedusha is fully manifest, but Mashiach ben Yosef is struggling with evil. So that 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 takes time until you get rid of the zayama, the evil of the sultan. You see. That's what happens. So, my question is, why does Hashem choose the attribute of Chesed? Why didn't He choose the attribute of Tifedet? Isn't that... Why, why didn't He what? Tifedet. Why did He choose the attribute of Chesed? Isn't Tifedet like uh, the, 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 the medium between Gvuda and Chesed? Isn't that like the beauty, the, the, it's like the between of it, of them both? Well, he did. He chose the concept of Tferes. So we live in, in Tferes. That's the, mer, the, the merger <coughs> between uh, Chesed and Gvura. But the real Chesed, the grace form of Chesed, is not the sphere of Chesed. It's Keser. That's really what the greatest Chesed so the sphere of chesed is much less chesed than the sphere of keser, which is the greatest of all. And that, and that, and that sphere really relates to the insof, where God just does what he wants to give <clears throat> what he gives without any uh, you know, reason. Because that's really what God wants to do. He only did the concept of dinam, where you have to actually do something to deserve. It's because of the concept called namadik sufa, where he wants you to earn it 
so you don't have some type of uh, existential limitation. <clears throat> if it wasn't for that, then we would be in Oilam Haba at the start. We wouldn't have to go through a world that has so much destruction and so much corruption and so on, you know. <clears throat> so Mashiach ben Yosef, a great deal of his time is spent, you know, battling evil, you see. But really, the, the really essential meat of God is keser. And in Oilim Habo, that's what you have, you know, and okay, so on, so you know. In Olam Haba, we have um, the revelation of God of Keter in all different, you know, degrees, levels, according yeah, to your marriage. Right. So is right. that the same on Yom Kippur? No, Yom Kippur is obviously it's Keser, but it's nowhere near what Olam Haba is. You see. No, I know, but is it also in levels as well? That's my question. Uh, yeah, there, there's a certain base level, right? There is a certain base level where the revelation is awesome, obviously, and it goes on for et- eternally, you know, but different people will experience different levels of his presence depending on what they did. And that's the concept of din, of, of judge, justice. You know, there's an accountability. You get what you deserve, even though if that which you deserve is so awesome, you see, In any case, so the main thing is to take advantage of uh, Yom Kippur. It's an awesome day. What can you say? It's an awesome day. You know? Rabbi. Yes. Rabbi, so if we're in the, we have to do this collective repentance then because the world, you know, we have the tikkun. We shouldn't Shouldn't we what? Yom Kippur. We should really all be going in that we're going to for everybody because of the whole world getting, you know, judged. Yes, the whole world is judged, sure. And what just happened in Florida and all over, right. really. Yeah, I mean, God is exacting retribution for what people do. You know, like I say, you know, we don't, we cannot uh, to evaluate a judgment. Only God can, as I showed, you know. Um, and the and the United States is being judged terribly. I mean, to have well, a hurricane like Sutton? that. What? Where is the Sutton on Yom Kippur? Oh, I don't know where he goes, but he cannot do his function. Oh. I don't know if you could say where is a malach, you know. We don't know where where they are. But the main thing is he cannot prosecute in front of the heavenly court. You see? And that itself is a partial messianic uh, concept. Messianic concept, yeah. Remember how you said you're not sure if the the Satan dies... Um, totally in the Messianic era. Maybe he just has another job. Well, maybe is a a preface. It's telling us that he doesn't have to die. He just, his his jobs are taken away. 
Yeah, maybe. It's really, a, it's a machloikas. It's an argument. Does he die or is he changed? You see. Mm-hmm. I once gave a whole shir about the sultan, what his delusion is. If you recall that shir, what his delusion is. So it's an argument what happens. Is he destroyed or is he modified to become a good malach? You know? Whatever it is, the key concept is that his job is over. All three jobs are over. And uh, therefore, his zoyama is gone. We are no longer part of him in any way. That's the key concept. And we are only part of God. You see?